we sometimes, um, maybe even often on this program, uh, review obituaries. There's an awful lot of lives out there that are worthy of comment. And by the time they're being written about in an obituary column, well, that's kind of the last shot. And one guy we're definitely going to take our last shot at is the late Robert Evans. To quote from his obituary in the week, Tanned, toned, and fueled by mountains of cocaine, Robert Evans was the archetypal Hollywood producer. It's show business lore that when Evans' housekeeper brought him his breakfast each morning, black coffee and cheesecake, it would include a note with the name of the woman sharing his bed just in case he'd forgotten it. But the magazine noted for all his high living, what Evans cared about most was spinning cinematic gold. After taking over production of faltering Paramount Pictures in 1966, Evans rolled the dice on up-and-coming talent and risky scripts, backing films such as Rosemary's Baby, Chinatown, and The Godfather that were critical as well as commercial successes. We went for original, Evans said. We fell on our asses on some of them, but we also touched magic. i got to say, it does amaze me that he was the key player in the production of both Chinatown and The Godfather. Speaking of finally getting around to seeing a movie, <laughs> uh, Rosemary's Baby was a picture which I, I had never taken in until a couple of weeks ago, and I have to say it, it was, it was uh, edgy. But with Roman Polanski as a director, it, it certainly was a commercial and critical success. Robert Evans was born in New York City to a homemaker mother and dentist father. He spent his teens chasing and catching Broadway showgirls, says the obituary, and acting in radio shows. At age 20, he became a partner in Evans Picone, a women's clothing line which he co-founded with his brother. He was on a sales trip to L.A. when he was spotted alongside a Beverly Hills pool by Norma Shearer, the widow of the legendary MGM producer Irving Thalberg. Shearer thought him a dead ringer for her late husband and insisted that he play Thalberg in a Lon Chaney biopic, Man of a Thousand Faces. That was in 1957. Evans, the budding actor, also attracted the eye of Daryl Zanuck, who put him in The Sun Also Rises. Unfortunately, his role as a matador in the film was looked askance at by co-star Ava Gardner, and in fact, author Ernest Hemingway himself tried very hard to get Evans removed from the cast, which apparently prompted the legendary response by Zanuck, which was, The kid stays in the picture. Anyway, Evans admitted himself he wasn't much of an actor. So he went back into fashion and made a fortune when Revlon bought Evan Pacone, according to The Guardian. Intent upon becoming a movie producer, he began buying the rights to hot novels, and his vision soon caught the attention of executives at Gulf and Western, the conglomerate that had recently bought debt-laden Paramount Pictures. Hollywood was shocked by the 36-year-old novice's hiring, according to the L.A. Times, but Evans silenced the doubters by taking Paramount from last place to number one among the major studios. The obituaries note that his personal excesses eventually proved to be his downfall. He became an industry pariah after an ex-girlfriend, a cocaine trafficker, was charged in the 1983 murder of Roy Radin, an investor in Evans's 1984 flop, The Cotton Club. But... He made a comeback as a producer in the 1990s and in 2002 narrated an acclaimed documentary about his exploits titled The Kid Stays in the Picture. I thought that was an enormously entertaining documentary and, and certainly can recommend it to you very highly. 
Our other worthy obituary for today's program is considerably less amusing, but probably more important. We're referring to the passing of Soviet dissident Vladimir Bukovsky. Mr. Bukovsky, along with a lot of other Soviet dissidents, were subjected to a rather diabolical catch-22. Soviet state doctors insisted that their denunciations of the communist system were a symptom of paranoia. And if they rejected the diagnosis, they were locked up in an asylum and injected with psychotropic drugs. For his campaigning against oppression in the USSR, Bukovsky earned 12 years in Soviet prisons and psychiatric hospitals, during which he purloined 150 pages of psychiatric records exposing this mistreatment of political prisoners. Smuggled into the West in 1971, the pages triggered worldwide outrage and the KGB eventually abandoned the practice. After the U.S. mediated his release in 1976, Bukowski settled in Cambridge, England, where he continued his battle with the Kremlin. He spoke of the horrors of captivity. The Washington Post noted that Bukowski was an inveterate dissident. He was expelled from high school for editing an unauthorized magazine and later booted from Moscow University for attacking the USSR as a doomed illegal society. He was arrested for the first time in 1963 for possession of banned books. While imprisoned, he went on 20 hunger strikes and was force-fed through his nose with oversized tubes that damaged his cartilage. After his release in a prisoner swap, Bukowski was asked at a press conference how many political prisoners remained in the USSR. He replied, 280 million. Following the fall of the Soviet Union, Vladimir Bukowski tried to galvanize opposition to Russian autocrat Vladimir Putin, said the Daily Telegraph. He ran for the Russian presidency in 2006, but wouldn't you know it, got disqualified by the Kremlin. Seven years later, British police raided his home and found child pornography on his laptop. Bukowski insisted it had been planted by Moscow to discredit him. I have no knowledge in this particular case as to whether that happened or didn't happen, but I I will say this, it's plausible. Unlike Alexander Litvinenko, the other dissident that tangled with Putin, well, among, among many others, at least Bukowski wasn't served up a, some tea with polonium-210 in it. In serving the interests of the Soviet state or those who run the country, the KGB and its successors can play pretty rough. Of course, I would hasten to add that uh, this is not something that's uh, restricted to totalitarian states. I had a very surprising and out-of-the-blue conversation with... Uh, well, let's call him an activist in the Bay Area recently, who informed me that, um, well, actually, this, this needs some setting up. Back in 1971, Washington Post reporter Betty Metzger received a batch of documents in her mailbox. It turned out these documents came from the FBI office in Media, Pennsylvania. They called themselves the Citizens Commission to Investigate the FBI. The burglars stole every file in the office and circulated the worst of them to journalists. Betty Metzger, ran, Betty Metzger read through this stuff and decided that it didn't even remotely compromise national security, but there was plenty of material guaranteed to embarrass the FBI. The question was, would any newspaper dare to print a critical story of the Bureau based on pilfered files from an unknown party? Well, executive editor Ben Bradley at the Post decided that, yeah, yeah, they would. A few days later, the piece, Stolen Documents Describe FBI Surveillance Activities, appeared under Metzger's byline. Betty Metzger wrote a book last year, I think it was, titled The Burglary. 
I have not yet gotten around to reading it, but I'm, I'm aware of, of the story. So I was a little bit surprised when a friend of mine revealed that he had been a participant. And even though the statute of limitations for these crimes has evidently run out many years ago, I'm not going to reveal the name of the participant. But like all of the participants, he was an anti-Vietnam War protester. Betty Betty Metzger notes that by burglarizing an FBI office, they hoped to find evidence of their worst fears, which was that the government, through the FBI, was spying on Americans and suppressing their cherished constitutional right to dissent. And this is how we Americans discovered that the FBI had a program called COINTELPRO. It was, in fact, one of the Bureau's most carefully guarded secrets because it was a huge program of dirty tricks and illegal activities designed to, quote, expose, disrupt, and otherwise neutralize, unquote, groups deemed subversive by FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover. Enraged by the burglary, Hoover ordered one of the largest manhunts in FBI history, with 200 agents descending on the Philadelphia area. And despite its (laughs) well-nurtured reputation, uh, uh, carefully fostered by the Bureau that it was a crack agency, wouldn't you know it, they weren't able to find any of the burglars. Note of the New York Times in its review of the burglary, tracking down new left radicals proved a lot harder than quartering John Dillinger. Betty Metzger in the book wound up comparing this raid on the FBI to what Edward Snowden, has done in blowing the lid off the NSA's mass surveillance of Americans. For those of you that revere the New York Times, (laughs) uh, I I do have to quote one bit from their review of, of this book, which was that, The problem is that unlike Edward Snowden, these burglars committed a serious felony on the suspicion that a government bureau was engaging in nefarious activities. Semicolon. They had no evidence in hand. Well, hello. A lot of people in the anti-war movement knew they were being, you know, surveyed and disrupted. Nevertheless, the New York Times poses the question, would the reactions have been equally heroic if they'd come up dry? Well, I I think I can answer that. No, their actions wouldn't seem as heroic if if they'd come up dry. But they didn't come up dry. They unveiled a secret FBI, which apparently, you know, irks them over at the New York Times. You know, I'm old enough to recall an anti-war protest that took place on the quad at UC Davis. Richard Nixon had expanded the war in Southeast Asia, and a lot of munitions were being shipped through Yolo County. Some folks took issue with that and were protesting it, laying down on the railroad tracks even in some cases. Given the insanity that was the Vietnam War, looking back on it, uh, I'd say that doesn't seem unreasonable to me, exercising your right to protest the war. One good friend of mine had another friend a woman whose dad was the spokesman for, I think it was Southern Pacific, I'm not sure, one of the railroad companies, who went forth, had a press conference, and announced that we are not shipping munitions through Yolo County. And wouldn't you know it, it turned out he was lying. Anyway, it's a good idea to know what uh, what governments are doing to disrupt citizens exercising their rights, whether it's in the U.S. or the old USSR. I will say that at least in America, they didn't throw people into mental asylums and give them psychotropic drugs on account of them being protesters. But, you know, we could probably do a whole show on what was done to uh, disrupt the efforts to protest the Vietnam War and other actions by the government which the citizenry objected to. But uh, it won't be today's program. I I so well remember guys walking around the quad pointing big 400-millimeter lensed 
cameras at the protesters and snapping pictures right and left. I'm pretty sure a lot of files were concocted as a consequence of that in containing those pictures of people supposedly uh, threatening the American democracy by virtue of protesting our war machine, but uh, I'm just going to leave it go at that. I was creeped out about it when I saw it then, and I'm, I'm, I'm still a little bit creeped out about it. You know, if we're going to bag on the USSR, and why not? We might do well to refer to a piece that appeared on History.com talking about how photos became a weapon in Stalin's Great Purge from wiping the traces of his enemies from the history books. Well, Stalin would make somebody disappear, which he did quite a bit of. He also made a point to make sure that the pictures of them also disappeared. Those of you who recall reading 1984 will no doubt remember that uh, one of the activities of Winston Smith and the others in the Ministry of Truth, which I think it was the one he worked for, was to go back and alter photos as needed, according to the current government line. Certainly based on reality, the article shows a picture of Joseph Stalin along uh, the Moscow Canal, joined by several associates. In the original photograph, on his left, is Nikolai Yezhov, a secret police official who oversaw Stalin's purges. For a while, Yezhov worked at Stalin's right hand, interrogating and falsely accusing and ordering the execution of thousands of Communist Party officials. But in 1939, Yezhov fell from Stalin's favor, and after being usurped by one of his own deputies, he was denounced, secretly arrested, tried in a secret court, and executed. He subsequently disappeared from the group photo along the Moscow Canal. You know, since we do have Photoshop these days, and you can almost seamlessly alter photographs, one, one does have to wonder what, what the subsequent record of history is going to be based on uh, the photographs that we have. But if, I hasten to add, your concern over the alteration of the historical record, the historical photographic record includes the Zapruder film, I would add that I personally have looked into the matter a bit and have concluded that the argument is not meritorious. Yes, there are some frames missing from the original film, but those are present in the Secret Service and other first-generation copies made from it. So, I hasten to add, do not be misled by the claims of Professor James Fetzer and others, in case any of you were. Oh, and I think I mentioned this regarding the notorious case of what happened to our 35th president, that I was going to go to Dallas this month to attend a conference on that subject. But uh, it turns out I'm, I won't be able to go. But I, knew, but I do know a couple of the participants in that event, and hopefully we'll have some feedback from it to share. And I also hope that by next week's program, we'll be able to share with you the national and international reaction to the book by Anonymous about Donald J. Trump. We expect there's going to be quite an outcry about it, according to the new book by a still unnamed author, Senior Trump administration officials considered resigning en masse last year in a, quote, midnight self-massacre, unquote, to sound a public alarm about President Trump's conduct. But they rejected the idea, reportedly, because they believed it would further destabilize an already teetering government. The Washington Post evidently got a copy of A Warning by Anonymous ahead of its release, They note that the writer of it is described only as a senior official in the Trump administration, and he or she certainly paints a chilling portrait of the president as cruel, inept, and a danger to the nation. Note the description by the Post. The author, who first captured attention in 2018 as the 
still unidentified author of the New York Times opinion column, described Donald Trump careening from one self-inflicted crisis to the next, like a 12-year-old in an air traffic control tower pushing the buttons of government indiscriminately, indifferent to the planes skidding across the runway and the flights frantically diverted away from the airport. That's some colorful writing. The book is described as an unsparing character study of Trump from his morality to his intellectual depth, which the author writes is based on his or her observation and experiences. The author claims many other current and former administration officials share his or her views. They quote the author as saying, I've decided to publish this anonymously because this debate is not about me. It's about us. It is about how we want the presidency to reflect our country and that is where the discussion should center. Some will call this cowardice. My feelings are not hurt by the accusation, nor am I unprepared to attach my name to criticism of President Trump. I may do so in due course. The author describes senior officials waking up in the morning, quote, in a full-blown panic, unquote, over the wild pronouncements the president has made on Twitter, saying, quote, it's like showing up in the nursing home at daybreak to find your elderly uncle running pantless across the courtyard and cursing loudly at the cafeteria food as worried attendants try to catch him. You're stunned, amused, and embarrassed all at the same time. Only your uncle probably wouldn't do it every single day. And his words aren't broadcast to the public. And he doesn't have to lead the U.S. government once he puts his pants on. The book also depicts Trump as making misogynistic and racist comments behind the scenes. Said the author, quote, I've sat and listened in uncomfortable silence as he talks about a woman's appearance or performance. He comments on makeup. He makes jokes about weight. He critiques clothing. He questions the toughness of women in and around his orbit. He uses words like sweetie and honey to address accomplished professionals. This is precisely the way a boss shouldn't act in the work environment. The author alleges that Trump attempted a Hispanic accent during an Oval Office meeting to complain about migrants crossing the U.S.-Mexican border. Said Trump, according to the book, we get these women coming in with like seven children. They're saying, oh, please help. My husband left me. They're useless. They don't do anything for our country. At least if they came in with a husband, we could put him in the fields to pick corn or something. The author describes that Trump is incapable of leading the United States through a monumental international crisis, describing how he tunes out intelligence and national security briefings and theorizes that foreign adversaries see him as a simplistic pushover who's susceptible to flattery and easily manipulated. According to the author, as he ranted about federal courts ruling against some of his policies, including the 2017 travel ban, the author writes, Trump once asked White House lawyers to draft a bill and send it to Congress reducing the number of federal judges. The president said, according to the book, can we just get rid of the judges? Let's get rid of the expletive judges. There shouldn't be any at all, really. The book portrays Trump as fearful of coups against him and suspicious of note takers on his staff. According to the book, the president shouted at an aide who was scribbling in a notebook during a meeting. What the expletive are you doing? He added. Are you expletive taking notes? The aide apologized and closed the notebook. The author also ruminates about Trump's fitness for office, describing him as reckless and without full control of his faculties, saying, quote, I'm not qualified to diagnose the president's mental acuity. 
All I can tell you is that normal people who spend any time with Donald Trump are uncomfortable by what they witness. He stumbles, slurs, gets confused, is easily irritated, and has trouble synthesizing information. Not occasionally, but with regularity. Those who would claim otherwise are lying to themselves or to the country. Well, let's see what happens when this hits the stands. We do have to add that uh, apparently the president has decided that he doesn't want to pay taxes in New York and has therefore said, I don't officially live in Trump Tower. I officially live in Mar-a-Lago. This caused the New York Times to pose the question, can Trump avoid taxes by moving to Florida? Adding, he'll have to pass scrutiny of New York auditors. It turns out that New York State has a platoon of auditors who zealously examine whether people are trying to skirt paying its state and local taxes by improperly claiming that they live elsewhere. Those officials regularly face off against an industry of accountants and lawyers who specialize in tax avoidance strategies. By the way, the president is facing quite a number of uh, issues and charges uh, from the folks in New York State, quite apart from the impeachment inquiry, and we'll just have to see where those lead. And in our next to the last uh, item referring to Donald Trump, we note that British officials were quite taken aback by the Trump administration's request that they help investigate American intelligence agencies. Yes, apparently Attorney General William Barr is overseeing a criminal investigation into the origins of the FBI's investigation of Russian interference in the 2016 presidential election. It should be noted that U.S. intelligence concluded unequivocally that Russian hacks and covert social media campaigns were aimed at helping President Trump win the 2016 election. Some commentators in the British press have speculated that Barr wants to discredit that conclusion. They are basically asking, in quite robust terms, for help in doing a hatchet job on their own intelligence services, one diplomat told The Independent. Barr has also asked Italy and Australia to investigate U.S. intelligence agencies. Meanwhile, down at the Mexican border, where that wall is being constructed that so far it appears Mexico is not going to pay for, gangsters can hack through one of the walls, steel and concrete bullards in about a minute. Yes, apparently using a $100 cordless saw, you can hack through one of the wall's steel and concrete ballons in minutes, according to what border agents reported to the Post. Donald Trump touted the new barriers as Rolls-Royce quality and virtually impenetrable. Asked about the smugglers and their cutting through the barriers, Trump said (laughs) the barriers could be, quote, very easily fixed. You put the chunk back in, unquote. Mr. McMillan notes that the Mexicans apparently are ahead of Trump on this one. They already put the chunk back in place, so it looked as though the wall hadn't been disturbed. So yeah, well, the president thinks you can fix the wall by putting the chunk back in. It turns out that smugglers can then turn around and take the chunk back out. Yeah, no word on whether they're, they're no word yet on whether they're going to simply install hinges. Well, it looks like we're down to our last three minutes, so we need to do some quickie items. And yeah, I'm sorry about going off on Trump, but you know. He certainly is in the news. And it isn't as though he's irrelevant to the fate of the world. I have number one. Tyler Moon was competing in a 10-mile running event in Minnesota when he suffered a heart attack. On his race bib, he had put Jesus Saves. After he hit the ground, 
Nurse Jesus Bueno was running behind him but stopped to perform CPR until paramedics arrived. According to The Week, Moon was stunned to learn in the hospital that his rescuer was, in fact, named Jesus. Causing Moon to say about the message on his race bib, what's pretty fitting after everything that happened. I remember my Spanish teacher back in junior high noting that the Spanish language saw nothing sacrilegious about, you know, naming somebody after the supposed son of God. And yeah, in English, we tend to think of it as sacrilegious. I'll have to ask my friend Jesus O'Malley about that. If you read the week magazine on a regular basis, and you probably should, you might note that every week they have a best books section chosen by this or that author. The current edition has the best books chosen by Gene Weingarten, who, although I didn't realize it, but is in fact the only person to twice win the Pulitzer Prize for feature writing. He described five books that he felt he could recommend and added at the end a sixth, The Mueller Report. Said Gene Weingarten, sorry, but you really need to read this before the next election. Although I sort of hate to do this, I guess I'm going to close with a meme. And no, this is not a first on Radio Parallax. I've never just identified one of these things that gets sent around as a quote-unquote meme. They originally described meme as this cultural parallel to a gene, a unit of, uh, of genetic information. This is going to be a unit of cultural information. I always thought that was an inane definition. I'd say these days it would better be described as a picture or drawing with a caption. In this case, it's a distinguished-looking elderly gentleman who's perhaps of 80, 85 years of age. And the quote is as follows. I have often been asked, what do you old folks do now that you're retired? To which the man replies, well, I'm fortunate to have a chemical engineering background. And one of the things I enjoy most is converting beer, wine, and vodka into urine. I do it every day, and I really enjoy it. What you want? I want bourbon, one scotch, one beer. That about does it for the program, which was produced by Edward McMillan, who you can count on going out and having at least one bourbon and one scotch at this point. Fact is, he's, he's not a beer drinker. Oh. Listening to Radio Parallax, we'll see you next week. I'm Douglas Everett, and I'm the one that'll be drinking the beer. Scotch, I'm drinking beer.